Welcome to Alligator Preserves. I'm your host, Laurel McCarg, and I have a most special guest for you today. I know I always say that, but this guest is all the way from Australia. I would like to introduce you all to Adam Jones. Adam, welcome to Alligator Preserves. Thanks so much for having me, Laurel. It's, it's a pleasure to be here and speaking with you. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. The pleasure is really mine. Now, I'm just going to let everybody know right off the bat that we're going to be talking about you, your goals, your partner who's not here with you today, who should be Adam Ashto, but we're going to be talking about the book that you two just published, the SH Star T, They Never Taught You What You Can Learn From Books, and your name's first, Adam Jones. And Adam Ashton's name is second. So I was going to ask you about that in a minute, but you go by Jonesy, yes? That's right. Yeah. So both of us named Adam. So I'll go Jonesy and Ashto, Ashto. (laughs) Nice. Well, check this out. And if you're just listening to me, you're going to have to go to the YouTube version to see this. This book is fabulous and filled with so many things that we're going to get to. So first of all, good morning. It's what, seven o'clock in the morning? 7 a.m. for us. So I just woke up, had my morning workout, um, meditated, read a book for a little bit, had breakfast, and now I'm uh, sitting with you. So um, yeah, I love my mornings. You had a full morning. What time do you wake up? I wake up at 5 a.m. So I I never used to wake up at 5, but um, I recently read a book, uh, The 5 a.m. Club. Not, Not the best book in the world, but in the sense of how it articulates uh, and how the actual book, it's got a lot of fat in it, I guess. But um, at the end of the day, it got me to wake up at 5 a.m., sold the whole idea to me. And uh, for the last three months, I've been up at 5 a.m. every day um, and making sure I'm just get, getting off to the right routine to start the day. I think I ought to look into that. Now, you and, and Adam Ashton have a podcast called What You Will Learn. Uh, tell our audience a little bit about your podcast. We've been listening. My husband and I have been listening to you for, for years now. Oh, wonderful. So good to hear. So we started about uh, five or six years ago now where uh, Asho and I, so we first met uh, working at a pub, it was called the Tudor Inn, just a real old scungy sort of pub uh, in a, you know, off streets of, of Melbourne somewhere. And uh, at that stage, we, neither of us really connected on books, but um, we were kind of mates, went out for a couple of drinks a couple of times, as you do with work buddies after working at a pub. But then we crossed paths again a few years later, and that was when I was at university. At that stage, I'd read my first most impactful book of my life at the time, and um, I was sitting there reading How to Win Friends and Influence People, and Ashto was at the, so I was at a pub, we were drinking, I was having a beer at a pub with one hand, and the other hand, I had the book, and Ashto was there, and he, uh, he totally got it, and you know, we were, one, we were the same, same breed of person, really. So uh, from there, we really kicked it off, and we kept catching up to talk about what book we're reading at the moment, what we're learning from the book. And then uh, that's how it evolved into the podcast. We thought, why not just record these conversations at the very start? Um, and that's what we did. We did it quick and dirty, put no 
effort into the recording. Didn't think anyone was going to listen. We just recorded for ourselves and nobody else. And then over time, it evolved as uh, as we started to grow an audience. We got feedback on how to improve, and uh, we improved over time. And um, here we are, six, five or six years into the podcast now, and uh, still going strong and loving it. You say improved over time. Now, I have to laugh with you, I think. I'm laughing with you, not at you. But your earlier episodes, were you guys like Wayne's World fans with the party on excellent doing your little your little song renditions at the end of your podcast? Whose idea was that? Oh god, I think uh, I was like on episode three or four because we were just we were just absolutely winging it. We were just having some fun, and then I think it just started. Let's just put a beat on and just see what happens. The first song was like twenty seconds, just recanting to a to a beat, and then it got it got wild. So we used to go on YouTube, download any sort of tune that kind of linked to the book. We didn't listen to the, what the tune was going to be, and then we just hit play and just started singing a song about what we learned from the book and uh yeah some of them really really worked okay we think but some of them were quite putrid and uh we only found out once we started getting listener stats of our actual episodes you know we would have performed very well everyone would listen to the whole lot and then at the very end it almost climbed to a plummet to zero and everyone just stopped listening to the songs that we thought we were so fantastic for Like, some of them are shocking I, we need to delete them I, uh, yeah they're, they're they're humorous for sure i mean uh, you know if you're if you haven't listened to any of these podcasts go out there and listen to some of the early ones because they're very entertaining now someone is calling and mm, this is not my office so i'm just going to pick it up and put it down hang on <laughs> that's all hang good. on i forgot to ask them how to mute the thing in here but anyway Maybe we all right so the SH star T they never taught you. Why in the 20, 21st century? Yeah. Do we still have to put a star there? Like, do we think that people don't know what this word is? Did you have problems with the title of this book, with publishing it with this title? That's a good question. We've uh, we've we've had a few interviews on, say, mainstream media in, in Australia, and uh, they've all come up with a different way to get around the, the star. So we had Stuff. stars and... The stuff, the shizen, someone said, the like you said, the S star uh, IT. Um, so we had a few issues, but it just it just stuck because um the way we came up with the title, I was we were what 70 or 80 percent through the book, and I was trying to explain it to a mate as we were going for a walk together. And uh, I was trying to explain it, what it's about, what it's about, and I was like, you know, the the S the they never taught you, the shit they never taught you, right? And and he goes, man, that's a that's a pretty incredible name for a book. It sounds sounds pretty good. I'm like, hey, I think that's it. It covers what we're talking about. So, yeah, since then we haven't had too much of an issue. But we thought if we just had the blatant swear word there, we might have a few issues. You know, getting into stores and um and getting online search and things like that. And isn't that just strange now? Isn't that just weird? It is. It is. But yeah, we're we're. The, the word should be in the dictionary and it's a pretty common word that everybody uses, including kids. So it is a little bit strange, I think, Laurel. It is. Anyway, anyway we'll get past that. When you two got together and were doing your podcast, you had lots of goals. Uh, you wanted to read more, obviously. You've met that goal. I think, what, you've both read more than 400 books, I think? 
I'd say in that range, for me, probably three to four hundred. Um, I've I've kind of lost lost count. But the good read says three hundred, and I don't account everything on on good reads. I, I forget a lot of the time. Right, and then and then you wanted to improve your retention. Now, how do you measure that? I think retention's the biggest one. Before starting the podcast, uh, I I especially would just I'd read the book and get to the very end, and I just totally forgot what I just read. Um, and someone would ask me, "Have you read that book? What's it about?" And then I'd just like fumble across my words and be like, "You know what? I don't really mustn't mustn't really got much out of it." So retention. Uh, it comes in a few ways for, for us. So I think reading it's one one layer, but then another layer is going back through it and going through all the highlights and notes. And then another layer beyond that is actually structuring the notes and discussing with Astro before an episode. And then when we actually record the episode, that's a fourth layer. And then when we used to edit and now when we just listen back to the episode, that's a fifth layer. So you're going over the 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 wide net at the start you you bring it down to the best parts that you learned from the book and then from that you just um layering on top of that and to the point where it's very it's much simpler to remember everything you've you've read over time so that was one of the plans at the start just for retention to ourselves and uh yeah it's really helped that and i recommend anyone who loves reading you don't have to go through the six five or six layers like we go through but pulling out the highlighter and uh, like you have i saw you had dog tags on on our book so, and you're actively reading, so you're really looking for the stuff that, that resonates, and then later you can go back to it and um, remind yourself of, of it all. Right, right, because the brain can only hold so much stuff, and with as many books as you both read, that's, I was just wondering, how do you how do you measure that retention thing? But that's one way of learning, and I know you've read a lot about the brain and done a lot of research, too. You wanted to learn new skills, which you have done with the podcast, and you learned that you shouldn't sing at the end of the <laughs> You wanted to work on your verbal tics, which I believe you've been successful at. How do you feel? How do you feel on that goal? Uh, it's it's still it, it was it was quite interesting at the start when we uh, when we when we worked on them. Over time, different ones would sort of pop out, and and like all of a sudden, you just a phrase you've never said before. You say six times in an episode, and then you listen back and you're like, where the hell did that come from? So. I think it's a never-ending, uh, never-ending journey. That one. It's verbal tics. It's it's difficult. I think it's easy. I think you do it very well, Laurel. Chatting chatting with you right now, you speak very clear and slowly and measured and quite precisely. So landing somewhere like that eventually is is the end goal. But just through practice and practice alone, you do get much better. Before starting the podcast, I was quite a hopeless communicator, and um, yeah, it's something a podcast can can really help you with. When you do listen to yourself later. It's amazing how many you find, and you don't realize some of the things that you do. So I think you're doing you're doing great. Do you, uh, do you have any tics, Laurel? I do. I have ums, and, and it's funny because in a little bit of stuttering, and I I notice that in a lot of people, a lot of people on the news, on different talk shows, they have a little bit of a stutter, and mm. I just think that's normal. And so I'm accepting it as something that I do, but I like yeah, back in the day when I was yeah. younger, my, when my dad was still alive, the word like was just imbued in everything. The Valley girl talk. I don't know if you've heard of Valley girl talk over there mm-hmm. in Australia, but you know, the like, 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 like everything's oh, like, yeah. like, 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 mm-hmm. and my father would, Oh, he would, 
get very angry about that. So I don't think I do that at all because yeah. of that. Yeah, no, I like it. I think I think a little bit of imperfections almost a good thing in communication. Sometimes when it's just too perfect and too presented, it doesn't resonate as well with just a little bit of a tick. But having said that, sometimes it can get annoying if you're repeating the same tick all the time uh, to a to a listener. So you have become more articulate. That was one of your goals. How about reducing your fear and getting outside your comfort zone? That's a big thing that I believe in and I've done all my life, just push myself out of my comfort zone. But have you reduced your fear of doing things like like this interview? 100% um, in very big ways. So a lot of the books we read at the start, especially the motivation ones, the good ones had an element of getting out of your comfort zone because you know, if you if you read books and then you, all of a sudden your goals you set to be a little bit higher than what you've got now, the only way to get there is to actually grow into someone different that can maybe go after something a bit different. And getting out your comfort zone is just part of that equation if you want to if you really want to be doing anything. And it comes in different forms, in different ways in books. I'd say Stoic philosophy, like Ryan Holiday's Obstacle is the Way, articulates it in terms of viewing the obstacle as something positive that you need to move towards. Tim Ferriss for us had uh, Comfort Challenges, Daring Greatly by Brene Brown talks about hopping into the arena. Um, there's so many. Uh, Nassim Taleb, who's another great philosopher, I think, Nancy Fragile, talks about tinkering and that's experimenting with things and seeing failure as not necessarily a loss or error is not a loss, error being an investment. So I think stumbling into new areas where you're uncomfortable so many different books attack it from different angles, but that's probably the sign of something that's true when it's hit from so many different angles about the way to live a good life. And then I think if you can, I think early days, what I tried to do and still trying to do ongoing is reframing what that feeling of discomfort is in the body. Like the night before you go to bed, oh, sorry, the, the day you go to bed before you're doing something that's big and you have that nervous feeling in the stomach and reframing that in your mind like actually this is where i want to be this is this is the feeling of, of growth and change i'm learning something new and actually the opposite when you don't have that feeling for a long time you think all right why am i actually not challenging myself in life what else is out there for me to go and try and do so i think that nervous feeling is a bit of a gauge of of a north star that you, you're growing anywhere so i think it's a like you like you said a really important thing I absolutely agree with you. And I just believe that if you don't challenge yourself, you don't grow. I mean, if you stay in a comfort zone, then you're safe. But how do you know what your capabilities are if you don't push the edges? Yeah. Yeah. It's an yeah. incredible thing to to switch, flick the switch in your, in your mind. And I think it changes your, traje your trajectory entirely because being comfortable and safe, it's pretty cool and great for the moment. But if you look back, like from the end, bringing the beginning from the end in mind, looking back to where you are now, and there's two paths you could take, uh, what's more painful? Is it the present moment discomfort or is it the potential of regret at the very end that you lived a life where, yes, you were comfortable, but you didn't take the path which is going to challenge and grow where you actually reach your potential to uh yeah, do something interesting with the finite time we've got kicking it on, on Earth here. Wow, that's deep. 
No, it, it is. And I believe somewhere in here, and I can't remember exactly which tab I tabbed. I won't look through there now, but somewhere in there um, was the suggestion that if you are nervous about something, go to the extreme. I think it was like negative visualization in there where you you actually go to think about what is the worst thing that can happen. And then you back up from there because probably the worst thing that could happen isn't going to. So I know you you cover this in this book too. Yeah, that's right. And that's I think that's another thing that's covered in different ways in different books is uh is if you visualize the worst, it does it does two things really. It's uh, it's again it's another stoic idea which which comes up and if you visualize and it goes the opposite against say what the law of attraction is, right? Where you're visualizing the very best about what's going to happen to you, which may or may not happen um, depending on what you do about it. But visualizing the very worst where you wake up, you visualize something awful happening in your life. It sounds morbid, but let's say you've visualized something bad or health going on with your partner. When they wake up and you speak to them, you're just going to be full of gratitude that they're still around and you're going to appreciate their their presence. So in that context, it's uh, very helpful. But in the context of projects or your life, if you take a risk or something like that, um, the worst case scenario is not that scary most of the time. And a lot of the time, you can actually provide insurance against it, provide some actions to to protect the downside. So the riskiest things that can happen to you, you can actually protect from. And then so you're just left with upside in uh, whatever your, your actions are, are trying to be. I love it. So tell me. This book, and for those of you just joining, we are here with Adam Jones, all the way from Australia, co-author of the book, The SH Star T, They Never Taught You. How is this book different from other knowledge compilations? I, I originally was going to ask how it's different from other self-help books, but this, this really isn't a self-help book, although there's stuff in here about all kinds of things, relationships, all kinds of things, but there are other compilations of knowledge out there how is this 686 page book different great question laurel i think the first iteration we did we went off and did a knowledge compilation in uh in writing our top 100 books of all time which was a similar thickness of, of that book we threw it out there and that was just pure knowledge compilation we got feedback from listeners and friends and they said hey sorry boys this is uh pretty boring stuff to actually get through i'm not interested in half the books they got no relevance to me i don't care about history or physics or i don't care about personal development i care about marketing whatever they might be because everyone's quite different what they want from books so i think it's different in where we landed in the next few iterations beyond that so what we've learned on our podcasting journey is say if you're really trying to deliver a lesson there's two components that you need to to bring with it that you got the bricks which might be just the lesson, but then you've got the mortar, like how do you make it stick together and um, enter into your framework of your mind? The mortar for us is the stories. You need compelling stories that aren't long enough that they're going to um, be irrelevant, but short enough that they deliver the point so it's much easier to remember something that's delivered within a story. So over time, what we did is we, we rather than just having 100 dry books, we added a lot more stories personal anecdotes, um, uh, pop culture references sort of thing. And it makes it much more of an entertaining read, I think, as you go. But then also you learn so much along the way. So, yeah, for us, that's one part. And then the other one was we grouped all the, the components into different lessons and different parts. So uh, I might not get them all off the top of my head, but 
part one, getting your SH together. So all about personal development, improvement, um, marketing, uh, business, history, personal finance, philosophy. And uh, I'm sure I've forgotten, forgotten a couple in there. But You have so many. But my favorite section is non-wanker philosophy. that's at the end and what what i would say about this is and and you hit it right too adding adding your own voice to this these are bite-sized ideas for readers to peruse and consider with your voices and and your australian dialect which comes through every time i see the word whilst i i giggled (laughs) oh that's great yeah well that's the goal right if you're reading a book there's some there's some totally rational component where you're just learning something but there's some kind of intuitive connection that you get to the book as well where you've hopefully got the voice from the reader coming through and um i think that's what what we also tried to land on the way we've done the podcasts over the years we've landed on a on a on our own sort of style um, which we tried to put through the the book as well with our own voices. And so Adam Ashton is not here right now. So you can be honest with me and tell me who's the boss. <laughs> I like it. So you mentioned my name was on the front of the book and the first one pops up. I think everyone would prefer something a bit more juicy, but we uh, we just flipped a coin for that one. Laurel, so it's a bit of coin flipping. We cycle, we cycle a little bit, I think, in terms of who's who's got the most interest in the book we're reviewing a little bit. But yeah, I don't think there's a necessarily a boss between us. There are times where each of us assemble the the Batman role and the Robin role. We actually call it like that together. You know, before an interview, it might be, hey, I'll go Batman for this one, or I'll go Batman, and you go Robin. So I think we cycle through and, and uh, yeah, we have different times where each of us have to step up and be the one driving things. Um, and we've got a great, we've got a very interesting and uh, great working relationship, which we've landed on over the years, I think. I think that's fabulous. And uh, I figured that your name went first on the book because alphabetically his name would come first all the time anyway. And he probably just decided that he was going to let you have this one as you have in the first name. But I think that's wonderful. How do you select the next book that you're going to read? Now, I did a little bit of research. And in in Atlantic, the Atlantic article back in 2010, so that was a few years ago, there were exactly... 129,864,880 books in the world. Wow. That was serious? in 2010. Insane. Well, that's what that's what the the interwebs told me. Holy so God, I believe that. How do you pick the next book that you're going to possess? Mm, well, I think there's there's a few components that go into this equation of book selection for us. Uh really important one is just curiosity, like so. I personally, or I'm always buying more books than I'm reading. So over time, you got a, a bookshelf that's well and truly more than you can uh, possibly get through in a lifetime, sort of thing. So when is the time for the next book? You got plenty to actually go through and flick through, and something jump out at you, depending on uh, where you might be sitting and whatever challenges you might be facing at the moment, or where your just general curiosity lies. 
So that, that's a big part of it. I'd say another element is also what the listeners are after. So if it's for the podcast specifically, we're going to make sure it's um, we can put something together which will be an interesting episode for everyone listening and making sure that they can learn at least one thing from what we're trying to put together in the podcast. And in a similar vein, uh, thirdly, is just getting the wide variety of books. Like so you can read 300 books that are the same book or you can read 300 different books. So because some books, they're covering the same ground, doing the same sort of stuff, which is I think really important in one sense because it might the most important concepts gets traction in your brain through the repetition. But yeah, it's also important to just go wide because you don't know what tool you're going to need in your in your toolkit. I'll give you one example. One book that or a category of books I'd probably avoid naturally and not really look for is a lot of the love category books, like how to uh, romance and things like that. And they've been quite uh, they've been quite a impactful in my life like uh, the five love languages by gary chapman very simple framework which i'd never pick up a book like that but after you read that it's very hard to treat relationships differently um there's five different love languages you might be one language it might be um acts of acts of service where someone your partner is really helping and and you know maybe cleaning the house or uh giving or taking you out for dinner or doing things like that but their, their love language might be gifts. So you actually need to go and say, hey, I was thinking of you today and I bought you this gift. But if you don't understand what each other's language is, you might be speaking Spanish and they're speaking English, your whole relationship. So by learning that and just reading that book, you can understand and have that conversation like, hey, out of these five, what are you? What's your language? And then you, your relationship and your emotional love tank, he calls it, it's always full. And then you're going through life as a partnership. But that's something like I never ever really pick up something like that you know I'm go to the business section marketing personal finance personal growth all that kind of stuff so uh yeah wide is has been really important in selection and what you were talking about the five love languages that all comes down to communication too the co-author of the book i we most recently wrote um, called Piece by Piece, 10 Lessons from a Jigsaw Puzzle. My co-author, Nadine Collier, is a licensed professional counselor. And we referenced exactly that in in our book, um, The Five Love, Love Languages. So, yeah. Oh, amazing. Familiar with it. And it's it's we've got some thunder going on here in the background. So if you hear any like loud noises in the background, I can't mute those out. So you'll just have so to. Adds, adds to the adds to the atmosphere. The ambiance. Mm-hmm. Um, you recently read uh, or reviewed Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is what, a 40-year-old book. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently read, and it, here's one Here's one for you. It's called Ordinary Magic by Todd Fonstock. He's a local author. And he, like in um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, he uh, hiked the Colorado Trail with his son, with his 14-year-old son, Dash. Mm-hmm. And so that story, I just finished reading it, and it is Fabulous. So that's that's one I might recommend for you. But I also asked our local bookstore owner, John Cameron, uh, owner of Salida Books here, about his nonfiction recommendations for you guys. And he suggested one called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kunerer, I think, Kimmerer. Braiding Sweetgrass, and another one that he said was just a sleeper that he absolutely loved called Midnight in Chernobyl, about the whole Chernobyl thing uh, by Adam Higginbottom. So those are ones that you could 
consider. Wonderful. Thank you so much. There's, uh, I haven't heard of any of them, to be honest, which is exciting. Some of those ones you haven't heard, but our personal recommendations, a lot of the time they're real winners. So I'm looking forward to uh, buying them. And John Cameron, uh, he does TikTok. Are you, are you guys on TikTok yet? We're not on TikTok. We're, uh, <laughs> I don't know if we missed the boat. Is it too late to jump on the boat? I don't TikTok? think it's too late to jump on. He's got a TikTok account uh, at, at Salida Books. And it's wonderful. And he does little 40-second book reviews. So he also does fun things on it. But you, sh- you should look him up and maybe think about that too because he's got a whole young audience following him, which is wow. wonderful. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Add that to your list. I'm interested, of, Laura, have you, did you read uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? Probably when I was your age. And that was a few years ago. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> What uh, what what did you think of it? I'm interested to know if you if you remember just like generally good. Well, ge- generally, generally, or- like a general vague memory. You talk about retention, right? And books that you've just read and forgotten about because you didn't write a book report on them or whatever. But generally speaking, I remember that I felt good about it. I felt good about it. Was a positive message. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of like uh, the power of now. Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. I read that right when it came out so again that was that was a while ago and i that was life-changing to me it just it really made me appreciate things like like right now being with you you're in australia i'm in salida colorado how crazy is this and how wonderful is this it's absolutely wonderful and uh it's interesting zen zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance ashton and i've never disagreed more about a book which is uh so i find i I like to find allies to get on my side and say hey ashton laurel's on my side she loves it (laughs) What did he not like about it? Or maybe maybe he should speak for himself. Oh, it's uh, uh no, it's all right. I can speak on Astro's behalf, realizing I'll be imperfect. But there is a lot of fat in the book where it's just um, you know, talking about we're on this motorcycle, my son going on this journey, and it's just seemingly talking about nothing. So ninety percent of it's a bit of that, and then only ten percent of it's actually talking about what what the point of the book is and it uh, makes you work really hard in the book i think so he didn't finish it actually it was one of the first books we've reviewed that was the only book we reviewed he didn't finish that's how much he didn't enjoy it but there you go so you don't you don't if you don't finish every book you start do you we do almost every time but this is the first time ashto didn't uh finish the book so we're, we're finished every book and except for ashto on this one <laughs> well suggest to him ordinary magic by Todd Funstock, and I think he will love it. It made me want to hike the Colorado Trail. I like it. It really did. Well, we'll, we'll get on it. And Power of Now right. is absolutely beautiful as well, isn't it? There's, uh, I remember it was too much when I first read it. I was, um, I was. This is before I. It was actually one of the first books I ever read, and uh, I was, I was in India at a doing like a yoga retreat or something because you're well outside of my comfort zone, sort of thing. And I had, to, I had to put it down because you just have to, it's the first time you're watching your brain chatter and run away. And it's quite overwhelming if you've never actually stepped back and not meditated on your mind and looked at it and seeing how wild it actually goes. You know, I had to put it down. It took me a few years later to pick it back up and, and read the whole thing. So quite a powerful book. What you can learn from books, lots lots. And again, we're not <laughs> going to get to all my tabs, but you have interviewed some pretty big names. What was the most challenging interview you did? 
mm, that's a good question. The most most challenging, I'd say, to be honest, would be um, the first one, even though it's a bit of a lame answer, but it's just that it was the first time we've ever done an interview, uh, an interview, even though we didn't have much of an audience, you're worried about how you might sound to the, the author and everything like that. So I think just the discomfort of the first one would be the most challenging. And then over time, like anything, you get bigger and bigger authors on and you'll be nervous sometimes for for that. But over time, it, get, it gets much easier. But I think it's the most difficult at the start. When you're first taking those first steps in, in doing it, it's scary as hell at the start. Um, but, yeah, since then, I think all the all the authors we've had, they haven't really challenged us back or been rude or mean to us or challenged us directly backwards. It's always been a bit of a one-way sort of interview a lot of the time. Well, I would hope no one would be mean to you because that's just rude. But I still get nervous. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time, but honestly, I still get nervous. Any new job I've started, any new interview I do, because again, like like you said, you you want to do well. And there's a little bit of the imposter syndrome going on there as well, I think. But um, one thing that you mentioned, my husband had a question. He was wondering if during uh, or if any of your interviews with authors have ever changed your opinion about their books. Uh, That's another wonderful question. Hmm. I think I'd say I'd say one improved our impression of the of the book made us uh, revise what uh, what was originally in it. And that was when we spoke with Simon Sinek. Um, we know he's very popular and everyone loves him for his TED Talks and whatnot. But just behind the scenes, Asho and I, we weren't that impressed with his books. Um, we didn't think he was coming up with that wild insights that required a 300-page book that he was writing for publishers. So we interviewed him after we read The Infinite Game which is, uh, is is third in the series. And I think after speaking to him, because it was right as coronavirus hit, we got him at a pretty wonderful time. And just the the importance of that mindset of playing the infinite game rather than the finite game. I think the people who played that and looked at the longer term picture and, and had all their decisions and actions for the longer term, they would have been a very different outcome where people are sitting today, only 12 months later. So I think after speaking to him, we're like, wow, that's actually one hell of a one hell of an idea is pulled into this book and the framework for the infinite game. I don't remember exactly off the top of our head, but how businesses can get through that time focusing on a just cause uh, and having infinite horizons and having that element of play um, important. So I think, yeah, Simon Sinek in, in, impressed us. He probably should have impressed us beforehand, but um, I think after it, we're like, hey, now he's one hell of a human being with some incredible insights that's that's awesome um our again our local bookstore owner kept his doors open through the pandemic by doing like an uber book delivery he was delivering books on his bike which was was amazing um how has the pandemic affected you me personally i i uh there's always a bit of guilt in a sense saying i got so much out of it and enjoyed it but it's uh, it's definitely the truth. It's the world got hit. Um, we all got hit. Had to work from home. I didn't lose my job, so I was very fortunate compared to a whole bunch of other people who were out there. Um, we were in isolation, so we had a Melbourne. I'd say had one of the biggest lockdowns in in the world. I don't know exactly you know what happened everywhere in the world, but ours was about twelve weeks just 
full isolation at home essentially can only go out for shopping but absolutely loved it the peace and quiet of having the calendar whites you can be more productive getting through your work at home um if it wasn't for the pandemic and having so much time up the sleeve we wouldn't have done the second and third iteration of the book we would have put something out which was very bland and boring so i I think luckily both asho and i we try to see it as an opportunity of of robert green he talks about in one of his books dead time versus a live time yes something uh you know about that so when something hits let's say if you go to jail or something like that it can be dead time and just be miserable and waste your life away in jail but you can see this is a lifetime as an opportunity to uh, to go out there and write a book or do something important. So there's a lot of authors who have actually written books in jail and came come out or Nelson Mandela, what he did in jail was just build his compassion and, and use that to make a huge impact on the world. So yeah, no matter what happens, you can. there's two ways of looking at it. The optimistic way is making the most of the opportunities that might be there that can grow from the ashes. And again, you don't have to go to jail to experience dead time versus live time. You could be in a long line in a supermarket and you can either complain about it or you can learn something from the people in the line or or have a book with you, have a book with you. And for those of you just joining, we are still here with Adam Jones, co-author of the book, The SH Starty, They Never Taught You. You recently interviewed and, and Ashto recently interviewed Daniel Kahneman. And during that interview, he said, writing the book was torture. Now, I can't remember whether he was talking about thinking fast and slow or noise, but I'm wondering about your book. Was writing this book torture? It and by the way, congratulations was. on on um, interviewing Daniel Kahneman. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. He was high, he's been one of the highest on our list um, for a very long time. It was torture. Absolutely was torture, Laurel. The first... The first iteration we did to the first version, that was pretty easy, right? It was a lot of fun. We did it in two months. It was quick and dirty and um, we thought we were 100% there. We were probably 30% of the way there. But beyond that, I think the the run from 80% to 100%, so nearly finish to finish, is 100% painful because you've got all the content down. From there, it's just editing, uh, rewriting, just finicky touches, picking up typos spelling mistakes uh, repetition of sentences and phrases uh, then you got the typesetting which is also absolutely necessary to nail and get right but pretty bloody boring if you're just trying drudgery. To mm-hmm. it's drudgery isn't it you, you know all about that the design of the book the book um, then the printing at the end printing it and then checking it and then I think we at the very end we went from gloss to matte changed the paper around um and we land we landed at something we were happy with but yeah it was torture at the end and it was part of us just wanting to to say hey we're done let's just leave it here don't worry about the don't worry about where it's going to go from here but i think the most torturous part was i remember when we thought we were 100 finished there was one phrase that repeated itself in the book and we're like oh my god and we released it at that stage we're like oh are we going to fix it or we're just going to let it go and what was it what was it was my fault I, I was told the, i forget exactly but it was part of my story i said the same thing twice exact same sentence twice in different places like when writing it i probably would have copied and pasted it and thought hey that that makes more sense to go here and then not 
you know, not deleted it. So <laughs> I, on the clumsy one out of me and Ash Joe, we've got a good combination where he's, he's much it. more rational and uh, pick up things. And, you know, I'm quite clumsy and, uh, you know, might be a bit more risky in some of the things, but yeah, it's our dynamic that lands somewhere pretty good. Well, I would say the torture um, ended up producing something pretty wonderful. How did this book change you? How did writing this book change you? Many, many ways. I'd say the most profound for me was I never used to think I was a writer. I used to think I was poor, absolutely poor at writing when it comes to even just little things like emails or memos or um, I'm an engineer by trade as well, so engineering reports, something I'd really try and avoid. But after that book, I'm just extremely confident that I'm a writer. So I think I've just bought into that identity a little bit and it's just added that skill to the toolkit that I can write in any context, just need to get get into a bit of flow and, and get there. So writing's one but also just completing a big project. I think one of our favorite books is uh, Stephen Pressfield, The War of Art. He's got three of them, War of Art, Turning Pro, and more recently, Do the Work, uh, which we have them all. The <laughs> You've got them all? <laughs> oh, yes. Read them all. <laughs> they're, they're beautiful books, but you, you're going to battle the resistance whenever you do a big project. The resistance is out to to kill you or kill your dreams because um, it's what stops between your your currently lived life and the unlived life and fulfilling your potential. I think after you defeat the resistance once on a very big project, it just gives you really confidence that you can go out and you can battle the resistance, the things that are just going to be pushing you back on a big project. So going forward, um, we've never done a project as big as this one, 680 pages of, uh, of a big book. 686. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Uh, but going going forward, if we do another book that's you know three hundred pages, it's not going to seem like a big deal. Or any other sort of project, it's not going to seem like a big deal compared to what we are what we accomplished with this one. What was the most enjoyable chapter for you to research? Hmm. And there are lots of chapters, so that might be a hard question. But maybe the most enjoyable section. I'd say, I'd say for me, it's the evolution one. It was apes to atoms and beyond. Just the complexity and challenge we had because all the books in this one lesson were huge mammoth books so i think we started with the selfish gene went into uh jared diamond's guns germs and steel then went into sapiens then went into by yuval noah harari followed by 21 lessons for the 21st century and homo deus so we tracked from the very beginning before evolution began with the selfish gene talking about the theory of evolution you know, as expressed by Richard Dawkins, which is a very hard book in itself to summarize. And then linking that to how, why society developed from that point um, and the, how we co-evolved with animals and agriculture and domesticated plants and animals. And then all the way through to the, the present, the challenges we've evolved as a species. And we had a, another book, Lessons of History, Lessons We've Learned Along the Way. And then at the very end, uh, looking at Homer Day, it's like where is humanity now and where is it going into in the future? So I think it's just enjoyable because that just out of the complexity that was across that whole realm. And I think it clicked in us weaving together a natural arc of us as a species, our challenges in the past, how we evolved, and where we're going to spend our resources and time as a species moving to, toward the future. So yeah, that was a lot of fun 
a lot of pain at the time writing, but a lot of fun at the end when we finally got that to click. And I love the wordplay that you had in there, apes to atoms, and of course, atoms, and you're both atoms. So that made me giggle too. So thanks for making me giggle several times <laughs> in this book. So one of the books you read had you quit smoking, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I was a pack-a-day smoker. Um, I was a bit of a party animal, took party drugs. I was still in university at the time, so I was doing something right. So I'd, my motto was work hard and party hard, but the but the partying was meaning I was just like just getting by when it came to my university at the time. And if I think back and see what that trajectory would lead me to, it's a bit scary. It's a bit painful to think where I'd be right now if I didn't come across this one book, Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking. Um, and not only did it make me quit smoking, it actually made me really enjoy the process, which is 100% bizarre because before that, I was thinking, how the hell can a book make me quit smoking? And that's exactly what it did. And the average smoker spends, I think, one point three US million dollars or something bizarre like that that the the costs on smoking then the cost on life is like an additional say five years on planet earth so work out the return on investment on one book which is thirty dollars and took me eight or nine hours to read and I'm getting a million dollars in return plus an extra five years of life. So for me that's really exactly where the reading journey began. I was blown away by what one book did for me i realized this is the best investment that i'm ever going to make and that's from books so i went out there and i've never never worried about pulling out the card about buying two three four five how many books if it looks good i won't even look at the price i'll go out and buy it because i know how much of an an impact can make after that uh, i swapped the habit the dirty disgusting habit of smoking for an equally positive habit in the opposite direction and that was that was reading. So that's where it all began. I get very excited talking about this book because if anyone's listening right now and is a smoker or anyone they love who's a smoker, stop what you're doing. No offense, just stop this podcast right now. Pull out your, your card, go to Amazon and buy the easy way to stop smoking for yourself um, and read it because that'll change your life. Or if you give it to someone as a gift for this upcoming Christmas and you convince them to read it, it'll change their life also. That's amazing. My father smoked for 40 years and gave it up one Lent and just did cold turkey. This was a million years ago. I don't even yeah. remember him smoking, but sometimes willpower is not enough. Uh, so I, this, I, I'm not a smoker, but I'm going to get this book because I'm fascinated that, well, maybe, maybe I could apply it to some other vice I might have. So what did, do you have any other vices? Oh, I do. I got, plenty of vices i think um uh alcohol is okay for me um i've went through cycles where i actually read the alan carr's easy way to control your alcohol because i was very boozy like the day i quit smoking because that when you quit smoking the book says go out and celebrate so <sighs> went out and celebrated and had a huge night on the booze and woke up but i was still delighted even though i was so drunk the night before i didn't uh, <laughs> still didn't have a ciggy right but uh, after that i read that book and it i stopped drinking for two years and since then i've started drinking again but more of a you know normal rate as you do glass of wine nothing wrong with that um but i think the one that's manifested and pops its head up over time is is coffee now which is a little bit 
cleaner than than smoking. But at my peak, I was six cups a day. Now I'm probably at three to five. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, that's that's a lot. That would make my heart go pitter patter big time. Mine's chocolate. I'm a chocoholic. I mm. I came out to my husband as a chocoholic probably about 20 years ago. And he looked at me like I had three heads because he said, there's, there's no such thing as that. You're making it up. What does that even mean? And so then I had to confess to him all the chocolate I was consuming. And like every time I'd go to the food store, the, there's the candy bars, right? Right there mm-hmm. at the checkout. And so Snickers really satisfies you. And <laughs> I'd eat it on the way home and I'd I'd hide the wrapper somewhere. I mean, like every time I went out, there would be chocolate. So, and, you know, I'd, I'd buy the two pound bag of, of chocolate chips to make chocolate chip cookies for the boys. And there would never the be any cookies, but <laughs> the chocolate chips would always be gone. <laughs> so, like yeah, I have, are you, I have still, are you still challenging with that one? Are you still battling that one or you got rid I, of it? I am still battling that one. If it's in the house, it's not in the house for long. So I just... I just don't, I just don't buy it. So I'm going to buy that book about quitting smoking and see if, see if it'll work for chocolate well, he's too. Got a, he's got different, he's got, uh, for the different, he's actually passed away now, Alan Carr, but his organization that he left behind, it does cover almost every vice, including coffee, which I, it's only an 80 page book, but I didn't finish it. I started it. And then the brain comes up with all sorts of excuses. Like when you try and swap, stop any vice, like smoking used to be for me, you go, oh, you got that important meeting next week. You're going to need coffee. You can't be uh, going through withdrawals then or you got something on the weekend. So I had that playing through the brain. Rationalization. Yeah. Yep. Which again is probably the resistance coming through uh, like Stephen Pressfield's War of Art. And that killed me with uh, with the, the coffee one. So I haven't quit that vice, but I think he's got one. For, I think there'll be one out there for for uh, chocolate, for sure. Like we're saying at the start, what he what he does, it's very different to using willpower because he reframes what you're doing from being something like you're giving up to something that you're actually gaining. So he actually gets rid of all the reasons for for say for example smoking, goes through all eight of them, knocks them out of the park with very logical reasons why they're all just stupid, like you smoke for for stress or after a meal, the taste or socializing. And then after that, you think by the end, of the very end of the book, you can't wait to stop smoking. You just can't wait for it. And then you wow. just jump out and it's so easy. It's so easy. Once you shift your brain from uh, away from like you're giving something up to something you're moving towards to and something you're gaining, it's incredibly easy to quit smoking. And the same reframe I'm sure will happen with chocolate where all the reasons you think you like chocolate, you'll reframe. And then I think it's called cognitive behavioral therapy i don't know much about that field but it's got a yeah. it's got a bit of this um a field behind it field of research and whatnot kind of like the idea that uh for a task instead of saying i have to do this you say i get to do this something like that yeah the reframing is powerful like we're talking about the comfort challenges like that nervous feeling in the stomach reframe that as something positive and then you actually move towards that feeling so the reframing can have a powerful, uh, powerful effect. Adam Jones, you have interviewed big names with your with your buddy Adam Ashton. You've written this tome, this book, this fun book. Again, packed with easily digestible tidbits to think about. 
you've obviously made your moms proud, both of you. What's next? Such a such a good question. I think uh, for our podcast, and the podcast is sort of a hobby slash business. We've got ads and we've got some income, but we still see it as a as a hobby. We've still got um, day jobs and, and things like that. But I'd say the most important thing is to uh, a concept by Jim Collins in uh, Built to Last. He talks about preserve the core and stimulate progress. So in the context of the podcast, it's keeping on doing what we're doing, the, the core of being the podcast, going through the best bits of the books, but always stimulating progress. And that means making changes like Nassim Taleb says in Anti-Fragile, just tweak and tinker and change things. And with the optionality, if it works, you can add it. If it doesn't work, you can drop it and move on to something else. So if you're constantly tinkering and evolving, then hopefully in five years, I can't guess exactly what it's going to be. If we're doing it right, it means in five years' time, we've evolved into something that's quite a bit different and quite a bit better than what we're doing now. Um, eventually, there, I'd say there'd be more books on the way. But right now, it's all—it's just um, promoting the current book and continuing what we're doing and going through the best bits of the best books and helping people around the world access the ideas in books. Adam Jones, co-author of the SH Star T, they never taught you what you can learn from books. You can get this book on Amazon, yes, in hardback. And I That's understand right. audio as well. Yeah, it's uh, right now. You can buy through us through our website, the audiobook. There's a 50% off deal um, right now. Also, very soon, it's going to be on Audible and all the other platforms. But yeah, buying through us, we can control the price a lot more and um, put the discount on there. And we've got all the links to all the different distributors who are, who are currently selling our book. Awesome. I will have links and photos. You, sh- you need to send me a couple of photos of you and Ashto. And I'll have links and photos uh, to this episode and the things we talked about uh, in, in your book on my, on my blog at leadvillelaurel.com. I'm still Leadville Laurel, even though I live in Salida, because, you know, Leadville Laurel has that great alliteration. So that's my website where my, my blog is too. Adam, you have been an amazing guest I, I, don't tell Ashto. I'm kind of glad maybe I just got to interview you, but if he wants to answer the questions himself, he can get in touch with me. I'm, I'm, I'm sad that we didn't get to meet him today too, but thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to tell our audience? Thanks so much for having me. Laurel is uh, one thing I always like to end on read books and do the proverbial. So read books and do stuff. Reading is just one part of the equation going out there, trying new things and doing things. That has to be part of the equation too. You can get trapped in self-improvement sometimes where you're just reading and learning and think you're making progress. But if you're not trying things, then you're not really not getting anywhere. So I think um, important to just leave us with that second half of the equation. Read and then take action, right? That's right. All right, Adam, thank you very much. And stay safe, stay well, and um, if I make it to Australia, I'll look you up. If you ever make it to Colorado, you got a place to stay. I'll um, oh. I'll even feed you fresh duck eggs from my ducks. Oh, wonderful! Thanks so much. Absolutely, we'll uh, we'll hit you up for that. But yeah, we're both based in Melbourne, so 100. percent We'll catch up for dinner or lunch or whatever if uh, if you find yourself here. 
All righty. Thank you for listening, everybody. If you have any questions, let me know. Otherwise, we'll catch you next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com. Thank you.